0: All right, good morning, welcome, uh, thrilled to be with you all, my name is Wally, if uh, we have not met, I'm teaching pastor here, and we're, we're going to sink in, uh, and apparently uh, it's time for surgery, so if you uh, have your Bible with you, open it up, I guess we're doing some surgery this morning, um, which may be accurate, I don't, we'll see, I'm not sure what is going on with you all. Um, so with that, uh, would you stand with me as we get started? Uh, I'd love for us to take, uh, some deep breaths and, um, a practice. I figured it was, it was good for me this morning, um, to step into this, uh, to kind of recalibrate the heart, the mind and everything as we will, uh, sink into the scriptures. Uh, so there is, Within uh, the Scriptures, the letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to the church in Philippi. And within that, there, there is, um, in chapter 2, as we would know it, we'd call it chapter 2, Paul launches into, uh, and they're unsure whether or not it was a hymn, some sort of poem. It's, it's often referred to as the Christ hymn. And, and Paul, they, they just know he's quoting it as he's speaking to encourage the church Uh, as he himself is in chains, but he says this, um, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, Being made in human likeness. Now, when it says uh, he made himself nothing, it's the word in Greek is the word kenosis, and it means to empty oneself. And essentially, what that is, is Jesus emptied himself of any divinity that he would connect and serve and live in full humanity. And that emptyingness is just a good place to say, you know, it's a practice. For us to empty ourselves of that ego, of that thing that say, I'm going to control, I've got this, and to say, I'm going to empty myself and make room for the Christ uh, to speak, to whisper, to move within us. So if you would, just take your hands out. um, If you want to close your eyes, wonderful. And we're going to just take a moment, and all of, maybe it's your week, or even this morning, uh, you were frazzled, you were hurried. Uh, there was an argument. Uh, there is work that is uh, coming tomorrow, or maybe even later this afternoon. There's that email that's hovering, and you know you have to respond. That phone call you have to make. I, I get it. It's all there, but what we're going to do right now is we're just going to, uh, with our hands placed out, picture all of the other things that are for another time, but not this time in this moment, and we're going to let it fall out of our heads, out of our hearts, and into our hands, and we imagine all of the chaos, the swirling, the hurry to just fall into our hands, and then we turn our hands over, and we let it fall to the ground, and we empty ourselves of that worry, that concern for now. And then we turn our hands back over and palms open and we then just whisper, Holy Spirit Christ, may you fill our hearts, may you fill our minds now with you, with your truth, your goodness, your love, your compassion, your mercy, your mission to help all people find their way to you, including us here. May our hearts be recalibrated to you and your ways even now. We inhale your love, that we would exhale your compassion. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen and amen. You may have a seat. We are gonna continue our journey. If you are new or newer with us, we are spending uh, the remainder of this year and all of this year walking through the gospel according to Matthew. So and what we have uh, kind of pointed out is Matthew is the least likely disciple in the fact that Matthew, very young fella, likely could be a teenager, maybe early 20s, that we would understand it. And he, a Jewish boy, if you will, working for the Roman government as a tax collector. So he works for the empire for the enemy, and he taxes his own people, the Jewish people, heaping on taxes. And if you lived in the Galilee region in which Matthew would have been collecting taxes, there was a thing known as triple tax. If you lived in that region, because you would pay taxes to the temple, the temple tax, the temple in Jerusalem, you pay temple tax, you would pay taxes to Herod, Antipas in the first century, Herod the Great's son, and then you would pay taxes to Rome. And so it's understood in the first century that you could pay upwards of, and it's likely that most uh, Galileans, most Jewish people probably paid about 90, somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of their income went to taxes do we feel a little better about ours today? Uh, A a little, maybe. Uh, But they would pay that, so then they have to live on uh, 10, 15, maybe 20% of their income to try and make their way in the world. And we have this young man, Matthew, who then is one of those people who says, I'm going to take more, thank you very much, from my own people and give it to uh, Rome. And at some point, Jesus says to him, as we read in Matthew, uh, hey, Matthew, come, follow me. But when Matthew gets up from his tax-collecting booth and the only thing he may take with him is his pen so he can write later on. Something we might know. He, he goes with him and follows all these other disciples are with him, these handful of people. But then Matthew, hey, would you get in line and hang out with these guys and you're gonna come follow me? Matthew is now hanging with the people. Oh, by the way, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are fishermen. Guess what they had to do when they catch their fish right there in the Galilee? And then they had to turn and pay taxes or maybe even fish to Matthew. Matthew. Hey, Matthew, come and follow me. Hey, you guys, you're going to all hang out now. Uh, you, you, maybe you had an argument at home this morning or on the drive uh, because there was some disagreement. Uh, there might have been a little disagreement in following the person of Jesus with this young man, Matthew. You can see why, it, wow, what an unlikely fella to not only follow Jesus, but then later say, I'm going to collect and write down uh, my experience so that the world may know what it was like. And so he writes it down. And we've been walking through Matthew, and in Matthew there are different themes, essentially. There are themes that break out. In fact, Matthew would write in five different sections. We might call themes, but they were sermons, um, preaching by Jesus, and he kind of takes them and he he breaks his gospel down into that. And so each theme we've broken into mini-series, and we're starting a new one this morning, and we're calling it Up into the Right? question mark and that question mark's really really important because it is the question of when we follow the person of Jesus. When we follow Jesus, uh, we tend to live in a society that says up and to the right is where we want to go. Up and to the right with our work. Up and to the right with climbing the corporate ladder. Up and to the right with education. Up and to the right with our finances. Up and to the right, we want things to be moving always in this direction of, well, good, better, more, most, on top, winning, whatever it may be. And in following Jesus, there's a question and there's going to be a tension in this next section of Matthew, a theme that essentially asks the question, is up and to the right, does following Jesus lead to a life that is, like up and to the right? And it's a really important question, and so we're going to dig into that. We are coming out of chapter 13, is where we were in Matthew. In chapter 13, we're, we're a string of parables, short stories that Jesus told, the art of story he used to try and get around people's head to help them experience, understand, get a glimpse in their heart of what it means to follow and live out the way of Jesus. So he told them these little short parables to try and call them to more. And uh, then we're going to move out of chapter 13 this morning and into 14, so we'll wrap that up. But to get our setting, to get our context, uh, Jesus has offered these brilliant teachings so far in Matthew. He's performed a pile of miracles, of healings, and um, uh, casting out demons, if you will, like people that are struggling, and he did all of these things, and then he told these artful stories, and we get here already at this point in Matthew, and what we find are lots and lots of people, more and more people following him while he does these things, and yet there are lots of people who still don't get it healings, miracles, teachings, parables, all of this. And there are people who are like, why? Which, I mean, that's where we're at. We're like, what is going on? And that will take us into our story today because it should get under some of the why. Why are people not getting it? So we'll be in verse 53 of chapter 13. We'll begin here. When Jesus had finished these short stories, these parables... He moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were what? Amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So uh, we're going to jump into some map map work. We're going to have some really fun Bible nerd time in a a minute. Uh, But can we just appreciate the human tension of this moment? This to me is one of my favorite stories, but I love this about Matthew's gospel here. The human tension. Jesus is heading back to his hometown where he grew up. We'll have to differentiate between all these different homes, if you will, because it can get confusing with Jesus, but his hometown where he grew up as a kid into an adult and he gives this brilliant teaching in their synagogue, so he's like home in, their, in that home synagogue, home stadium, home turf, and he gives a teaching and they're like, wait a minute. We know you, you're Mary and Joseph's kid. We see your siblings, I mean, look it, they're over there kicking each other in the shins and playing in the dirt, we know them, we know you. Where, where do you think you can do all this fancy talk? What is happening with all the, wait a minute, can you just sense this tension? It's really something, and I, I love the Bible, and this is one of the things I love about the Bible is the humanness of it, that it places us in this tension so uh, what happens is Jesus is going back to his hometown. It's essentially, uh, he's going back to almost, I mean, then it's like a, a reunion of sorts, class reunion, family reunion. And what happens, what you see here is there's that group of people standing by the punch bowl as Jesus shares. He does some, and, and they're sitting there and like, what? It's, it's that guy. And they're sitting by the punch bowl going, who does he think he is? I remember when he got a wedgie in gym class. I remember him sitting in the back of class and always had his hand, what, no, nerd, guy. we know him. Who does he think he is? He's that that plain old Jesus, a plain old Mary, a plain old Joseph. Who does he think, are you with me on this? Now, Bible nerd time. Uh, It'll be lots of fun. We have to situate ourselves just to get an idea of where we're at. So we'll go to a a, a couple maps, but we want to be in the land. We've got to get the context. It really helps a lot. It can be confusing navigating what I would say is three different homes that we would say there is where Jesus is born, which is a little town of Bethlehem, house of bread, Bethlehem, house of bread, or Bethlehem. Uh, as we might know it, and then there is where he grew up, where he spent his childhood and grew up, which is Nazareth, or Nazareth, and then where he makes his home as an adult when he kind of begins his profession as itinerant rabbi as he would be, he makes his home in Kephar Nahum, or we say Capernaum, uh, so Capernaum, so you get an idea, here's Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee right around there, and then Nazareth right there, 40 miles about a 40 mile away and we'll get into some of this distance. But next uh, map, we'll go down here. So here at Bethlehem, here at Bethlehem down here, it's about 90 miles away. So born here, traveled up just so you get an idea of this movement of where he is in terms of his home. But we then ask the question, it's important to ask the question: why on earth did he make his adult, like professional, if you will? Why did he make his hometown in Capernaum, kephar Nachum? Why did he do that? Why would you choose Capernaum to do that? It's a small fishing village. And Jesus is going to go here and make that his home because this is where he thinks I'm going to go now. I need to get this message, this good news of the kingdom of heaven to go all the earth. We're going to get it to to all the known world. Why would you center yourself in Capernaum? Now, real quick, in Israel, uh, next map, there are three main north and south roads. Three main north and south roads. We start with the King's Highway. King's Highway runs on the eastern um, part of Israel, so on this side of the Dead Sea. So it runs up and goes along the Jordan River. This is desert. So if you're going from Egypt to northern Israel, you want to take King's Highway, it's desert. It's really rough navigating because it's so hot. It's brutal. And so if you're going that way, you could. There is the ridge route, which you see running up the middle. The ridge route is mountains, the so Judean mountains you would go through if you wanted to travel to go north from Egypt up. And you would go through the main cities of Beersheba, Hebron, Jerusalem there, and then Shechem. So there's these main cities, so you could go there, but you would also then have to go through, right, kind of right in here, you would have to go through Samaria. Whoa, no, Samaritans are there, so it's best to go around. We can't be interacting with Samaritans. So you'd go around, so then the most popular travel route in Israel would be to go the Via Maris. Via Maris means way of the sea and you head along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and the Via Maris because of uh, the simplicity, the ease of travel, that's the route you would want to take is the Via Maris and this is important because you travel the Via Maris and you would head north and south but if you were to go east and west, there's only one main road in Israel and it's called east west road like the the creativity was shot that day like hey we got to name this thing you know east west road i don't have it anything in me right now east west is what it is Uh, so east west road now here's what's fascinating east west road then it's the only main road and it connects with the via Maris. they collide if you will and guess where they collide right north of the sea of galilee capernaum so what that means is if you're going north and south, east and west, and you are going to do trade, and you're going to do trade bridging the western world and the eastern world, all of that is the Galilee region and the, the little village of Capernaum becomes your major trade route. So if you are going to get things to the ends of the earth, if you are in the east and you want to get your silks and what you are making to the west, then you go through this trade route. If you want to get the Roman people want to get their stuff to the east, it's going to go through Capernaum. So a village that's maybe Capernaum, a village of maybe 1,500 people actually is a sound system with Dolby surround that goes out to all of the world. It is your Tokyo, it is your New York, it is your Los Angeles. It is getting the message out. Anywhere in Israel you want to be in Capernaum, Kephar So why does Jesus go there? Because he's like, it's time to take this thing global. So I'm going to go 40 miles from Nazareth. Nazareth, a town of maybe at most in the first century, 450 people. So think really small town and he grew up in little small town and then he moves to Capernaum and he's trying to get his message global. That's where he is taking this thing so if you then are from Nazareth and then you go, here's Jesus, he grew up in this little itty-bitty little village, 450 maybe, everyone knows everyone, so we all know one another and he went there and now he's back home and they go, no, we know you, you're Mary and Joseph's snot-nosed kid. And now you, miracles, you're hearing all these things, teachings, hold on, wait a minute, where did you get this? That takes us back To our class reunion our family reunion he's in town they know wait a minute we we know you you apprenticed with your dad joseph on being a tecton that is the greek word we always say carpentry and then we think wood but in the first century in israel very little woodworking very little you know what tecton typically worked with stones And if you're in Nazareth, which they've excavated and all of that, they found darn near nothing in Nazareth, but guess what they did find? A stone quarry. And so there is Sepphoris nearby where there is today even a major theater and it's beautiful and it's very Greco-Roman and it's all built up and it's likely that Jesus and his dad, Joseph, probably worked there, taking stones from Nazareth and bringing them over and doing work as tectons, stonemasons, in Sepphoris surrounding. So this is the work that they would have done. But now we find Jesus as an itinerant rabbi working the Galilee region and getting his message out. And the people from uh, Nazareth are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So the thing is you grew up in Walker. You you went to a private school in Walker maybe and so this small little thing, you got to know everybody, and you were just eh you. It's just you. You know, I tried to fit in. I tried to fly under the radar. So I was plain. I was normal. I was ordinary. And then, though, after school, you moved away. And you began to see different cultures. You had different experiences. You began to learn new things, meet new people. You began to grow and become more. All of a sudden, you have all of this. And then you roll into town, and you head to Boardwalk Subs. And you're like, I'm going to get a little something to eat. Back in my own digs. You know, I remember that. And then you run in to Bill and Alice, and they're like, hey, we remember you, you're, you're, you're Rick and Lucy's kid, I remember it, didn't you always get picked on in gym class, I remember you, and you're like, yeah, 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 now I design uh, stuff for Amazon, and uh, it's radically changed the world, and I did all this, and they're like, get out of here, you, we know you. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. Something is shifting in the story. Jesus is teaching and he does something. And what happens is he gives this brilliant teaching in their synagogue and then it turns with wow the people in galilee have been flocking to him we saw it coming along the shore he pushes out in a boat because the crowd gets so big because people are like who is this what's happening this seems incredible kingdom of heaven here now really what is it all here it's happening and they gather around he goes to nazareth and he gives this message and this is how it goes next text says this and they took offense at him The people hearing him and they're like, what? Ah, no. You little snot-nosed Mary and Joseph kid don't get to say big things, do big things. No, no, no. And they took offense at him. You went, oh, I see, what's that? You went to Capernaum? Oh, you went to this big megaphone thing and things are getting out and so you think you're something, but we know you. And we took offense. Now for us, we might be thinking, are you kidding me? What's the matter with these people? Nazarenes, what are you doing here to Jesus here? How could you take offense? You know, and we're, we're kind of like, how are you oblivious to what we think is obvious? Jesus is the son of God. He is the Christ. N.T. Wright, our scholar friend N.T. Wright, pulls us back into the context and says this. Part of the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus wasn't an exception. He was and is one of us. That's part of what Matthew's doing here is just trying to give you the plainness, the humanness of Jesus. And you get in this place and he's like, let's settle there because you have to remember these people from Nazareth, this is how they see Jesus. Normal. Regular. Regular. And now you're saying what? And you're doing what? Normal, plain Jesus? These people in Nazareth have a view. They have a perspective. They have an understanding of who Jesus is, and they're stuck in it. You've had that. You come back and you meet somebody and they're like, hey, how are you doing? And you're telling them and they're like, I can't compute because I remember you back then and they can't get over little you and understand where you are today. Even maybe this week, you've done whatever this week. You've experienced life and death and who knows in conversations and you've grown and then you meet somebody and they're like, hey, how are you doing? And you're like, I have this whole week to tell you about. And they go, well, I just remember you from last week and you're this. And you're like, even today, what I've experienced is shaping and transforming me. Are you with me? This moment is like, we, we miss out on so much. And so then, in this perspective, N.T. Wright continues and says this, if new creation and new life are going forward, those who have invested heavily in the old creation, the old ways of life are bound to be offended. Now, if you need to take a picture of that or write that down, because if that doesn't help balm your heart over the last couple few years even, New life is bursting out of Jesus. A new creation is being born. He's announcing it. New things are going forward, but the people who are stuck in the old ways or they get a lot from the old and new is coming out, and they're like, whoa, I think not. I'm doubling down. I'm hanging on to this. Don't you dare try and tell me some new thing. Don't you tell me things are moving forward. The old things is the thing. Are you tracking with me? You see how loaded this this interaction and story is. These people are unwilling to hear or see good news and all the miracles and teachings because they already have a set narrative about who Jesus is. They are stuck in the old, so they refuse to make room for the new. It's easy to judge them But remember, we read one tiny story in the Gospels of Jesus' childhood. We get one thing from when he's 12 years old and he's at the temple and he's riffing with the rabbis and talking with the, the scholars, and we get that little thing. That's it. We don't have any of that. These people have all of his life, of his childhood and growing up, We read the Gospels backwards from their completion and everything, and so we know the whole story, and we read it backwards, and we're like, oh, Jesus the Christ, of course, of course, of course. Son of God. But for these people, they're like, "Mm, I think not. So I would say what struck me is it's these people are stuck in the U2 song, stuck in a moment you can't get out of. It's a fantastic, uh, very great, but that's it. They're stuck. They're here. They have their perspective. It's like a barrier around them. It's like a glass container that I can't get out of. In the midst of all this, Jesus provides us an insight that is really helpful for us to know. It's a very common bias. Verses 57 to 58, Jesus said to them, only in their own towns and in their own homes are prophets without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. First, that line, and he did not do many miracles because of their lack of faith. This, this line here, he could not do many miracles, to me, this, is, uh, this leads to the game you can't say the Bible says. So if you say, well, the Bible says, he couldn't, because Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verse 5, it says he could not do any miracles there. Where Matthew says he did not do many miracles, Matthew makes it about his own volition. Like, I'm not going to do that because I know your faith is weak, it's small, you don't see the bigger picture. Why waste, essentially? He's saying, Mark says, no, he couldn't do it. You're like, mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. But Matthew has a reason why he's getting at this to say, which is that Matthew has Jesus going, why would I do it when I know you are stuck in a moment you can't get out of, you have a perspective, and you're making no room for more, why would I try and double down, dial it up, try and go bigger, I'll prove to you, I'm gonna drag out more evidence, I got more data here, I'm more, I'm bigger, I've done things, I'm something else, and see if I can prove it to you. And Jesus is like, no." Instead, he says, prophets are without honor in their hometown. Instead. In one's hometown, you have to do more and be more, much more to overcome your smallness, plainness, whatever you were. I've got to dial it up if these people are ever going to see me as more. Are you feeling that tension? Which, to me, leads to something that's going to sound a little funny, but I think I've learned it's very true. God is not very good at math. God's not very good at math, because the divine is more than the math. We think if we could just do more, if it's just more, it's just addition, it's just take this thing and make it bigger, make it louder, do more of these things and it would work out. But God's like, "Mm, that's not how I work. The, the, The scriptures are the God of the one for the many, never the many for the one. Think throughout the scripture, I'm going to take this one man, Abraham, I'm going to call you, you, through you, the whole world will know. Eh, Wouldn't it be better if you let, like, the whole world know? Just get the message to all, and he's like, oh, I'm going to use one to get it there. Noah, Jacob, the Israel, the one nation, and we get caught on the one. Oh, the one is so important. The point is the all. The one is only to get it to the all, and we always go, ooh, the one. But God does this goofy, like, that's bad math. You're not very good at math, God. Play the odds. This isn't good. Jesus doesn't double down. He doesn't do bigger miracles. He doesn't do more for these people in Nazareth. If we learned anything from sports and business and economics and education, the goal is about up into the, right? The kingdom of heaven is different. We'll talk further next week about God and numbers and math. It'll be lots of fun. I can't wait. Uh, But I think it's safe to say God is bad at math. I'm okay, and I know that sounds funny, but he chooses to be. Uh, Back to our story. We read that Jesus' hometown, they were offended at the suggestion that he was more, that he could be more. A prophet, uh, whoa, hold on, wait, what? More than a prophet? Come on. But the context guides us to recall what Jesus taught earlier in Matthew about the need to be discerning in our desire to help others. How do we help others see a bigger, wider, broader, more perspective, right? Jesus did a teaching on how you can do that, but what not to do in that he says, Don't judge or guilt people to try and get them to behave differently, and don't give good things to people who can't appreciate what those good things are. In Matthew, uh, we read in what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven, verse six. He said this: "Do do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces." It which we read that, and you're like, "Well, who would be giving?" pearls to pigs. I don't even know what's going on there. See, in that first century world, pigs are what? No way to a Jewish person. No way. Why would I give something of immense value, pearl of much value to a pig when a pig doesn't understand what it is? It'll break its teeth on there. It'll just stomp on it and then it'll turn and tear you to pieces. He's giving an image of you can't guilt and shame people into changing and you can't go, I know what I'll do. I'll manipulate you by giving you good gifts and I can get you to turn your behavior. And Jesus says, "Mm, that's not a good idea. And here he stands in Nazareth and these people are like, who do you think you are? And he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll give them big things, miracles, really. No, I'm not doing that. If you don't get it, my heart breaks, aches, and I'm so sad, but I can't make you see the more. (laughs) And you're going, but you're Jesus. I can't make you have an open heart. I can't I can't make you have an open mind. I need you to do that work to see. I hope that our dashboards are blinking when we hear some of this, because this thing was the tail end of a movement of don't guilt someone, don't shame them, and then don't give good things into changing them. There's a movement in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he gets to displaying this teaching. He now models this teaching in Nazareth by saying, I'm not going there. I'm not going to dial it up if you people don't understand what's going on. And I can only imagine, maybe you can, how heartbreaking that must be for Jesus to look at those people. Oh, there's there's Margaret, my baker when I was a kid, and I love her, and we used to have so much fun together, and now I'm giving this teaching, and she's like, get out of here, little Jesus. And he's like, oh, Margaret, I want you to see the more. Oh, I want you to see the more, but I can't force you to see the more. Now let's go to another perspective in this story, uh, Matthew 14, 1 to 2. Now we tip into chapter 14, and this is what happens. At that time in this thing, Herod the Tetrarch, that's Herod Antipas, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. John at this point is dead. The next part of the scripture explains how Herod had him beheaded in prison in and gets all that, so that's what comes after this. But he's like that is why miraculous powers are at work among this Jesus because we think, Herod's like, I think it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Herod thinks, Herod finds it more logical that John the Baptist is raised from the dead than Jesus is the son of God. And you're just like, what is happening here? But the, and the text goes on to tell the story of how this all happened to John because John had called out Herod and his affair with Herodias, his his wife, which was his brother's wife. It's convoluted, crazy, and then he gets in there, and John says, yeah, what you people are doing, this isn't okay, and they're like, well, then we'll throw you in prison, and then they eventually have him beheaded here as the story goes, but let's remember John who paved the way, John, the cousin of Jesus, paves the way for Jesus, and in paving the way, and then gets arrested and thrown in jail, and John, remember his perspective on Jesus is, I'm paving the way for the one Look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, sin, that's all of sin, takes away the sin of the world. But then John finds himself in prison. And in prison, John's like, I'm in prison. Maybe Jesus isn't who I thought he was because my life isn't up and to the right right now. So John, let's just remember this, John sends his messengers, will you go talk with Jesus and ask him if he is the one who is to come because I'm in prison and I don't like that. And then this is what happens. And Jesus answered his attendants, John the Baptist's messengers, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news. preached to them, Ready? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me oh, blessed is the one who can see the more and doesn't get stuck in well my life is not up into the right you can't because you're this small person so you can't become more uh, Jesus says, whoa, 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 blessed is the one who can see beyond their circumstances and that there is more. Blessed is the one who can go, well, maybe there is more to this story. Maybe there is more to who Jesus is. Blessed is that one, but the one who says, nope, I'm done, I'm finished, I have my perspective, I'm closed off, it's done. He's like, oh, well, that's a problem. Are you with me? verses 4 through 6 of chapter 11, um, That not offended by me, that's there. Uh, then humanity. What we hear is just understanding who these people are. Humanity can't see beyond their idea of divinity. These people have an idea of who God is, what God is, who can be Messiah, I guess. Certainly, because they go, we know the coming Messiah will wipe out Rome. You have to remove our oppressors. So the one who is to come must be a military leader who's going to dial it up and crush Rome. We have an idea of who God is, and that idea of God is actually keeping them from God they're stuck. It happened then and it happens now. Are you with me? And Jesus says, blessed is the one who has eyes to see the work of the divine beyond the small ideas of our minds. God is more than the mathematics." Blessed is the one, I would say it like this, blessed is the one who is open, humble, teachable, and pliable in how they understand the kingdom of heaven taking root, growing, and blooming. We might go, I think the kingdom of heaven moves this way, but I'm open because I think it can happen in all sorts of places, in all sorts of unexpected people and ways, and I think good news could be bursting, and I'm going to be open to that, even though I I think I have it figured out. But that's again, what we're talking about, the kingdom of heaven is paradoxical. It's upside down to a society incessantly clamoring for an up and to the right way. So Jesus's prayer for them and prayer for us is, will you have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand that there is more? And it's mysterious. And when I say mysterious, mystery doesn't mean the unknowable, mystery means the endlessly knowable. So the kingdom of heaven works like this. We often go, oh, I I think I got it figured out. I think I got the answer to this question. The kingdom of heaven isn't, I've got it. I've locked it in. It's done. The kingdom of heaven works like this. Oh, 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 interesting. The kingdom of heaven is a bunch of oohs and ahs of, I thought I figured it out, but look at this. There's more. Oh, interesting. Oh, apparently it's deeper. It's wider. There's more going on here. And the kingdom of heaven is, ah, yeah. Ah. It's like, we lo- I love to learn. Oh, it's, it's opening it up and I'm reading, I'm studying. And I'm like, well, I've never heard that before. That's fascinating instead of, no, you're wrong, you're out, you're gone. Because I've got it figured out. The kingdom of heaven is like ooze and oz. Imagine people so stuck. Can now, just work really hard to imagine people so stuck in their ideas about God that they miss the God who is among us. Imagine people stuck in how they think the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be, or where they think it's supposed to be, that they miss the kingdom of heaven here, now, in your midst. Will we have eyes to see the more beyond the mental? more beyond the mental construct of God. For me, the wisdom behind or underneath this story came to life, grabbed my heart, shook me uh, nearly 20 years ago. I was living in Hudsonville. That's where I had grown up. And now I'm, a, I'm an adult, uh, so, so the age says. Uh, 20 years ago, and I was an adult, and I'm living in Hudsonville. I had recently gotten engaged to my wife-to-be. We were engaged for about two months, engaged there. I'm working part-time for the church that I had surrendered my life to to Christ. I had been baptized, I had found community, and I was working part-time there, and all I needed now is for this to become a full-time job so I can take care of my soon-to-be bride and we can go forward. Then, I was offered a full-time position at another church south of Detroit, Michigan, where I did not know a single person my church that i was with countered and they said we will offer you a full-time position and in fact how much are they offering you we will offer you more money and i'm thinking whoo now we're talking is this how this thing works Uh, I like this. And so I'm thinking, okay, good. Now, this is a big deal, but I want to do my due diligence. So what I did is I sought the advice of the person who had been a mentor in my life. He had given me a job to, to actually pay the bills. So I was working for him. He was my boss, wonderful, mentoring me, gave me this job because the church wasn't really going to pay a whole lot. So I'm doing this part-time job, and it so happens though that my mentor, he was an elder at the church I was on part-time staff with. Oh, see, he's an elder there, and he is going to be my father-in-law in a short time. This is who this man is. And so I had already asked, hey, would you give your firstborn to me in marriage? And um, now I probably should ask, hey, can I take your firstborn and bring her to south of Detroit as we get married? So, or we can stay here in town And we can work here for your church in which you're an elder and make more money than we would by going south of Detroit. And I will never forget what he said to me. I'll read it so I can get through it. You first came to this church as a punk kid, always goofing around. You've grown up a bit. You've done a lot in the last few years, and the people here love you. I love you, and I want you to stay. But there is a lot more in you. I think if you stay here, it's likely you'll always be seen as that funny kid, which might be impossible, might be impossible to overcome. I think it's similar to what Jesus knew He says to me, only in their own towns are prophets without honor. For you to grow into the much more that I believe is in you, you probably need to leave. I hated that idea. And there was a part of me that wanted to prove him wrong. No, no, no. We can overcome that. I can do it. I can work hard. I can overcome that but I didn't, and I left, and as I reflect back now, it was 20 years, and I was talking with him about it just a couple days ago, this, and he smiled, and he goes, oh, 20 years looking back, and he goes, whew, boy, that really actually worked out quite well, didn't it? And the humility and wonderfulness of this man, but what I trust now, twenty years looking back, is he gave me divine wisdom. He could see the more. He had all the reason to go, yes, stay here. I mean I'm thinking he's an elder and he's giving me advice to leave. Oh, you're in trouble and he's dad who's saying, yeah, take my firstborn and go. I'm guessing he's going to go home to my mother-in-law, future mother-in-law. He's probably in trouble there too. I just sent them. I said, you should go. Now, he would never say, you better go. He, the way he always said, I just think. This is the way I step back, and he just prayed about it and took it in and said, ah, I just think there's more, and I think you have to go. Just an idea. This is, mi- this is one of many, many lessons in being open to the wisdom and actions of the divine rather than static ideas of the divine. Because there was a part of me that said, logically, mathematically, I stay in with the people I know, that I love them, they love me, uh, I make more money, like, come on, it says stay. But the wisdom says, go and learn. And oh, did I learn in crash and burn ways? It was not an up and to the right journey, it was a painful, brutal, getting kicked around, trying to figure it out with my new bride and take care of her, and she take care of me as I'm stumbling and fumbling and trying to figure it out, and that job went poorly, and I moved out to California, dragged her out there, and we started a church out there in just a few months, crash and burn, and then we move Back to Michigan, dragging our tail between our legs and just on it. And then we start a church in Muskegon because that sounds like a good idea. And, And just gift after gift after gift that's not necessarily wrapped with a bow, but wrapped with hardship and difficulty and struggle and growth and goodness. And it just doesn't make mathematical sense, but it made divine sense and there was growth. I trust the truth of this story because I continue to see it happen. Some of the work is learning that it's not our role to forcefully wake people up to the divine. We can invite, we can call forward, we can live as witnesses to that which is deepest within us and around us, being born, God is here, and I'll witness to that, and I'll invite people to that, I'll call people to that, I'll continue to witness, look, look, see, but I can't force and I can't make it happen. Jesus wasn't surprised by the fact they didn't get it. He may have been heartbroken, but he wasn't surprised. And then he didn't force his hand. He didn't dial up bigger miracles, double down on performing more. Maybe they'll get on board. He did the work, offered the teachings, and invited people to see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Many refused. There are times when trying harder, presenting more evidence and more data won't break the barrier. Doesn't mean we don't try, certainly. Hey, we do our due diligence, we work hard. But there's sometimes that it's not going to crack it because some people, they're stuck. And it's not our job to unstuck them. I think the work is continuing to witness to the divine among us, which is an experience that we live from and we live for. This story has led me to believe that God's not good at math because God is always more than the math got growth then our growth anyone's growth is found in availability and pliability of heart you want to grow have an available and pliable heart what I am so beyond grateful when it comes to this community uh, again this week. I, it's becoming overwhelming, and I will tell you that it is becoming overwhelming. Just this week, again, I talked to two more pastors that I had worked with in the past years ago. That was great, and I got connected with them, um, and, and we were talking. And one of them said to me, "My goal, my goal in the pandemic, my goal was to be a pastor, to still be a pastor when it's all done." That's, that was just my goal. And he is on sabbatical and he was before me in a puddle. Just been beaten to a pulp. And I said, what in the world? He's like, people they were just set in their ways and if we talked about anything or we talked about things and people would double down and they were in fight mode. And how many pastors I've talked to that their churches vomited on them In the midst of a pandemic, you don't tell me we can't be together and you don't, you mean we can't gather lots of people and stand shoulder to shoulder and breathe on one another in a pandemic? Who are you? And they lit into him. And they're like, but the church is more, we're more, we can do more. You are wrong. You're wrong. We're right. How dare you point and say that there is racism? Don't you dare talk about that. No, you won't. We've got it figured out. Don't you bring it up. And half of the church left. Half. You don't talk about that stuff. No way. We've got it figured out. Don't you dare bring it up. Wally, did you talk about any of that stuff during the pandemic? We did, we grabbed some drinks and we went to our friend's house and we had pizza in the backyard and we talked about it. And you're here, praise the Lord. They literally, oh, you didn't get dragged off and beaten to a pulp because we did, we did availability and pliability of heart. Is there more? Could there be more? Could I learn? Could I be open to what God is up to? Are you open to the more? I believe we grow when we see the one who is beyond the brain, the one who is more than the math. Many will not. Many say, I've got it, I've got it figured out. We're all set. So don't just tell me more of what I already know, please, and thank you. May we as a community, be open. May we be a community of curiosity. May we be a people who pursue the endless knowability of mystery. And may that lead us to see more of the divine within us and all around us and with others. May we be a community that seeks the heart of God and seeking the heart of God breaks open our heart. And may we be open to that. Where are you at at work God where are you moving what are you up to I want to walk and step with you and that may not be up and to the right that might be me getting down on a knee and serving and giving and being broken and saying God I guess you get it I don't but keep talking I'm listening I'm doing everything I can and if that means I humbly kneel fine so be it you will lead, that can be difficult, can be scary a little bit, but we'll do it as a community. Diverse perspectives, backgrounds, and we can sit and talk and go, wow, God's moving in your life, but it looks way different than the way God's moving in my life. Well, bless God. You have a story, and I'm going to listen to it rather than judge it and try and control it. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, you have gone before us. I bless you for this story, I bless you for this invitation. My goodness, Jesus, what was it like for you to stand before your family, your friends? Your neighborhood, those you had done life with, laughed with, cried with, celebrated weddings, participated in burying your loved ones together. And that Jesus, you opened your heart and you poured out the good news that the kingdom of heaven is here. And people were offended because it can't come from you. I bless you, God, for us to be able to see that, wrestle with that. And God, I pray as you do, that you continue to pry open our hearts with love, not out of force, but love, compassion, mercy, and invitation, that our hearts would pry open and see you all around us. We would hear you of where the good news is moving and we would step into it, celebrate it, and walk with it. Gracious God, that you would continue to help us be a community that serves and gives and loves and pours out and walks in your truth, which is just truth. And God, even and when it calls for sacrifice that we would say yes. Bless you, God, for this, this morning. We pray it in the name of Christ.